I've been involved in Christian work since 1981, and I've been a pastor for 34 years. So I, I'm not an expert in church history. I just do this on the side. So outside of just uh, preaching two, three times a week, sometimes here, there, and everywhere, I just kind of do a little bit of reading in the morning. I try and do about an hour's reading every morning in church history before I actually start the day. And I, I thought I would speak this year on Jewish evangelists. And then William Booth, the good the bad and the ugly. Now, I, I'm not into PowerPoint. In fact, I think it would be rather incongruous if I show church history on PowerPoint. The two don't go together. So I've put together three boards over there. And the, if you don't know what those are, those are called photographs. I advise you to look at them so that you can say to your grandchildren, you know, years ago I saw a photograph. And it will really boost their bragging rights at school. The first evangelists were Jews. On the day of Pentecost, a Jewish evangelist stood up called Simon Peter, and he preached, I suppose, the second sermon the church ever heard. The first church sermon, sorry, the first sermon that Peter preached was to the church in Acts chapter 1, getting the church right. And having sorted out the church, he then went out into the world and preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls came to faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 21, verse 20, we read of the Apostle Paul arriving back in Jerusalem, talking to the church about what God was doing through his ministry among the Gentiles. And in that kind of visit, Paul got speaking to a man called James, the leader of the church. And James said this, you see, brother Paul, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. So not only was God saving Gentiles, God was doing a great work among the Jews. And surely one of the great early church evangelists was Stephen, who was a Jew. And we've got to include the Apostle Paul. While God set him aside to reach out to the Gentiles, he was also a great Jewish evangelist. In the second century, a book was written, or a paper was written by a Jewish believer and a historian called Hegesippus. And the book had this title, Have Any of the Rulers Believed in Jesus? You see, in the first century, there were 6,000 Pharisees, 20,000 priests, of whom 7,200 were connected to the temple. And the question is, did the gospel impact these people? And when you read your way through the Acts of the Apostles, we are told that many priests started to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as they believed, they got their P45. They had to get out of Jerusalem because it was very dangerous. It was very unsafe for them. And so they began to travel throughout the then known world. And as they traveled, they went to speak about Jesus. And so it's right to say that the first wave of evangelists the Christian church ever had was Jewish evangelists. And by the way, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 said to his disciples before he went back to glory, Now go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, but start in Jerusalem. Start in Jerusalem. And how interesting, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 16, he spoke about the gospel and said, oh, by the way, don't forget, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. How interesting that in the 21st century, making disciples of all nations almost excludes the one nation that gave us the gospel. And that these days, Muslim evangelism is vogue, and Jewish evangelism has become very vague. In fact, I was reading a book in preparation for this on 
on uh, the Middle East and reaching out to the Middle East. And every country in the Middle East was mentioned except Israel. The one country that gave us our savior. Back in the 19th century, there was a well-known Englishman called John Wilkinson, and I'll speak about him in a few minutes. He was personal friends with Hudson Taylor. And every New Year's Day, Hudson Taylor and John Wilkinson used to write to each other. Hudson Taylor used to write a letter on New Year's Day and include a check with the letter and put it into the envelope. And it said, Dear John, Romans 1.16 to the Jews first. Yours in Christ, Hudson. Yes. And John Wilkinson used to write a letter on New Year's Day and include a check for the same amount he'd received from Hudson Taylor and said, Dear Hudson, and to the Greeks also, <laughs> Yours in Christ, John Wilkinson. And how interesting that these two missionaries, both English people, both in a kind of different world of ministry, one to the Greeks and, and one to the Jews, both understood that they had a calling within God's kingdom. Beginning of the, uh, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, there was a growing concern in this country about world mission. In 1792, Carey preached his famous sermon that led to the founding of the BMS. And then in 1795, the LMS came into existence. 1797, the religious track movement started. In 1799, the CMS started. And then in 1804, the British and Foreign Bible Society was born. So mission was bubbling within the church. The first notable Jewish convert who had an impact on this country was a man called Joseph Samuel Frey. He was the son of an assistant rabbi who, when he was traveling in Europe, came across someone who was a believer who actually led him to the Lord. God began to do deep things in his life, and he felt that God was now calling him to be a missionary to Africa. While he was waiting for that call to be confirmed by the LMS, he had a dream. Now, I don't know how you would cope if someone came to you and said, I feel called to a Christian minister through a dream. But he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw himself standing up in London, preaching to a large crowd of Jews. He saw it very similar to the Acts of the Apostles as the man from Macedonia. And so he cut all ties with the London Missionary Society. He never went to Africa, and he spent the rest of his life reaching out to Jews in this country. The way he did it was he put on an annual, sorry, a weekly lecture on a biblical theme and got hundreds of Jews coming, and being a Jew, he spoke their language. He knew where they were coming from, and he began to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He started the first British missionary society that reached out to Jews in this country. It was called the Society for Promoting Christianity Among the Jews. That's a classic Victorian title. <laughs> Seven years later, he had to leave the society he started. Why? Well, church shifter doesn't lie. It was hijacked by the Anglicans. And... Uh, Denominational snobbery was a problem then, and it still is today. You're either in or you're either out. And sadly, this, this burden which, which was his from the Lord through a dream to reach out to Jews in London was, was taken over by the, by the Anglican Church, and in the end they began to push out anyone who was unordained or who was non-Anglican. He felt so uncomfortable in his own living room, so to speak, that he left them, 
and he started his own society with two main aims. And this is 1815, to see Jews one for the Lord Jesus, and number two, to awaken the conscience of the British church to Jewish evangelism. So he started, are you ready for it, the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel (laughs) among the Jews. The first missionary he employed, apart from himself, was a man called Benjamin Davidson, who was a converted Jew from Germany. And uh, they started their own training college in London, so that if a Jew became a Christian and was interested in serving his own people, then they went to college and had training. And, And they sent men to places like Manchester, Bristol, Leeds, Liverpool, great Jewish centers, and said, go and cut your teeth there. One man called Israel Naphtali, what a great name that is. <laughs> he, uh, he, he worked in Bristol for three years and then spent the remaining 30 years of his life just going around the Jews of Manchester. And I like his honesty. He said, after 30 years of doing that, I can honestly say, I think I led 50 Jews to the Lord Jesus. Not 500. Not kind of exaggeration. But through hard work, I can say, I led about 50 Jews to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a man called Philip Jaff. He was in Birmingham. So all the big cities had a Jewish evangelist. In the UK at that time, there were 60,000 Jews. And 30,000 of them lived in London. And uh, who's going to reach these people? Well, these people were trying desperately to, to reach them. But basically, the pioneer of Jewish mission in this country was a man called John Wilkinson. You'll see his photograph up there on the board, an interesting character. He was sold out for, for Jewish evangelism. He came to the Lord... And he went to the college that was founded by the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel among the Jews in Blackfriars. You think, oh yeah, I get it. Here's a little college in Blackfriars, and anyone who wants to reach out among the Jews, you go and do a Mickey Mouse course, and then we'll call you a Jewish evangelist. Oh, no, no. He went there with seven other students. What did they study? Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Chaldee, Syrian, Theology and logic. (laughs) Not necessarily in that order. John Wilkinson left that college fluent in Hebrew. And at the end of his life, just one year before he died, he said, he wrote on the flyleaf of his Bible, I have read through the Old Testament 100 times in Hebrew and 14 times in English. This Englishman was was passionate about reaching Jews for the Lord Jesus. He then was employed by the Missionary Society and began to work in London and in Brighton and in Bath and in Bristol. And uh, it happened again. He would write to a church and say, I'm working for the British Society for the propagation of the gospel among the Jews. Then turn the paper over and continue with a a letter. And uh, he said, I'd like to come to your church and, and, and speak about the work. On a regular basis, he received a letter which said this, Are you ordained? Are you part of the church? No, I am an independent. I work for Mission Society. Sorry, you can't come and speak. So, under great pressure, because he knew people within the Anglican Church, he got himself ordained. 
not because he was in agreement with it, but just to open doors to help the work of the mission. He began to travel all around the country. His, his logic was this, four, years, four months in London and eight months on the road. That man literally burnt himself out for the Lord Jesus. He says in his uh, biographer that he traveled 10,000 miles a year. These are Victorian miles. No kind of fast cars. If there were cars, no. It's either on the train or kind of stagecoach or walking. He said he traveled 10,000 miles a year and preached between 16 and 20 times a week. And amidst all that, he was, he was speaking to Jews. Oh, by the way, he was big friends with Mr. Spurgeon, who gave great credibility to him. Uh, and on one occasion, well, he was always speaking at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, but on one occasion, Mr. Spurgeon said, come on, John, just, just come and warm our hearts about Jewish evangelism. Because Mr. Spurgeon was passionate about reaching out to the Jews. Uh, and John said, I stood in front of 2,000 people and just unburdened my heart about reaching Jewish people. And at the end, Mr. Spurgeon said, if ever any man was sent by God to the Jews, surely it's our dear friend, John. We wish him Godspeed. When D.L. Moody came to this country, uh, John Wilkinson went to see D.L. Moody and said, if I, if I organize a meeting uh, and fill it full of Jews, will you come and speak to the Jews? And D.L. Moody said, no, I am averse to sectional work. We would kind of rip the man's arm off. Going, of course I would. So he said, no, I understand. But he said, I can't start speaking to this group. and I'll speak to a huge crowd of people. He said, that's fine. So John Wilkinson organized a meeting. Uh, and how about this? He had D.L. Moody reading Isaiah 6. He had Ira Sankey singing a solo. Maybe it's a bit naughty. He asked Mr. Spurgeon to preach. <laughs> and he chaired the meeting. You kind of burn with envy, don't you think? What? What a meeting that must have been. After 25 years of, of traveling 10,000 miles every year, four months in London, eight months on the road, he said to the society, I'm getting too old for this. I would like to stand down. They said, no, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. Thinking they had him on a string. He said, I will keep going. I'm going to leave you. Oh, no, you've made your point quite clear. If that's what you feel after 25 years... I'm leaving you. This is a man, when you kind of think of it, I'd have put those miles over those years. He had traveled around the world without leaving this country ten and a half times. Just going around this country telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he left. And with a personal friend, a man called John Adler, he started, you'll know about it now, the Mild May Mission to the Jews in London. He started it on the 1st of June, 1876. He was like a magnet to Jews, even though he wasn't a Jew. He was fluent in Hebrew. He, uh, he was well conversant with all the rabbinic writings. In fact, he knew more about the scriptures and the Talmud and the Mishnah than the Jewish rabbis themselves. And uh, he was always going around trying to catch the attention of Jews and, and to introduce them to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, among his friends, yes, we mentioned Hudson Taylor, C.H. Spurgeon, A.T. Pearson, F.B. Mayer, uh, Sir Robert Anderson, W.H.G. Thomas, Webb Pebbly, Andrew Bonnet of Glasgow, Henry Moorehouse, William Longstaff. He wrote the hymn, Take Time to Be Holy. A man in my first church got that wrong. He used to say, take time off to be holy. <laughs> 
No, Ron, it's take time to be holy. Not. <laughs> I've just finished reading a book on the Russian Revolution, 1917, and all that was going on. And, and I was astounded at how much anti-Semitism there was in Russia around that time. It became so, so poignant that there was a great unrest among the four million Jews in Russia at that time. What did John Wilkinson do? He said, we've got to send missionaries out to those Jews to introduce them to the Lord Jesus. So the Mahdameh mission sent sent Jewish evangelists from this country out to Russia to reach those who were very unsettled about what was going on. His main port of call was Hull, because the majority of Jews who came from Russia to this country around this time always came through Hull. And as they got off the boat, knowing, you know, they'd say, right, oh, we've got a boat coming in this week, right, we get our evangelists here, we have literature, we have scripture, and we talk to these people, we offer them hospitality, we offer them a home, and if they're interested, even a job. And through that, many people kind of come into this country from Russia terrified at what they just left, thinking, what am I going to do? They walk into the arms of a man who is incredibly loving and passionate and who speaks Hebrew and is fluent in the scriptures. In 1880, he opened the medical mission to try and reach out to Jews in London practically. He said at the end of the first year, 5,566 cases passed through the hospital And uh, in the first annual report of the Mildmay Mission, it records that 43,000 people have passed through their doors. Some five years later, uh, in terms of actual Jews who had passed through the hospital for medical treatment, he said it's up to 60,000 people. Amazing. And he writes in his uh, journal, we have never had one service for mere amusement the gospel is simply preached to men, women, and children, and many have been brought to faith in Christ. Wow. You know, why is it? You know, you know how the BBC think, not another version of Pride and Prejudice, or not another version of Great Expectations. And when it comes to the Christian book world, I say to myself, why have we got another biography of Hudson Taylor or D.L. Moody? Why has no one ever told me of this Englishman who's reached more Jews than any other Englishman in the history of our nation? Why is his biography not being published? It's worth reading. You can't put it down. Here is a man who was motivated by reaching Jews for Jesus. By the way, he's buried in Highgate Cemetery. And uh, I haven't seen his grave, but it's on my list to pay the authorities to uncover his grave and just to stand there and say, Lord, give me something of that passion this man had for reaching Jews for Jesus. David Barron, he's on the board as well. He was born in Prussia. He, uh, he was training to be a rabbi, and uh, he came to this country because things were quite unsettled in Prussia. He got off the boat in Hull. Who did he bump into? John Wilkinson. He said, hello, young man, where have you come from? I've come from Prussia. What are you doing here? Well, I, I've come looking for a new life because things aren't very stable where I've come from. Would you like to come to London with me? We can give you accommodation. And, oh, by the way, what do you think about the Messiah? And so they got in conversation about, about the Messiah. And, uh, well, eventually John Wilkinson led David Barron to the Lord. So what does the man do? 
he writes letters to his father back in Prussia saying, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm settled here. I've got some nice accommodations, some nice friends. The Jewish grapevine is so well-knit that word gets back to his father, your son has become an apostate. He's become a Christian. So when David Barron received his first letter from his father, it began like this. To my lost son, David. He wrote to his father on a regular basis. Uh, every now and then his father would, would write back. But the father kept the letters hidden because he did not want the rest of his family to kind of buy into this apostasy of his son who'd moved to England. But in the end, his eyesight was starting to fail. And so he said to the sole remaining son at home, Son, my, my eyesight is failing. Would you just read me your brother's letters? So as his brother was reading his letters to, to their father, he read himself into the kingdom of God <laughs> and got gloriously converted. David joined the staff of the Mild May Mission, started by John Adler and, uh, and, and, and John Wilkinson. And uh, by this time, they had 17 full-time evangelists reaching out to the Jews of this country. Mr. Adler, by the way, he was no kind of uh, small-minded man with his brain. He translated the New Testament into Yiddish. I mean, I have to say, these men were giants, you know, who in the academic world could have made an awful lot of money and gone many, many places. But no, they were quite happy, even though they were brilliant linguists, to spend their time standing on the streets of London and Hull and Birmingham and Leeds and Manchester telling Jews about the Lord Jesus. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he didn't have a brain. He had a dynamo burning in his head. And yet he was quite happy sharing the gospel with slaves and ordinary people. The Mile May Mission had a great desire to reach out to people in Scotland uh, who, who were Jews. And uh, John Wilkinson said to John Adler, the man who translated the New Testament into Yiddish, and he said to David Barron, the man who'd led to the Lord, who came from Prussia, he said, I feel God is telling me to send you to Scotland to sort of put your foot in the water to see how things are there. The morning they were about to leave, he gave them £20. He said, this is £20 to cover your, your journey and your expenses while you're in Scotland. Just before they got on the train, the mail arrived. He opened the mail and £20 had been sent by a Scotsman to the mission for further work in Scotland. Now, £20 from a Scotland, that from Scotland. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, even today. So they took that as, as, as a sign from the Lord that they had to go to Scotland. David Barron said that while we were there in Scotland, we were speaking between us to 80 Jews a day about Jesus. They, they booked into bed and breakfast. When they came to sign out, the landlady refused to take a penny. She said, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, my husband and I have been praying for years that God would send people to our country to tell the Jews about Jesus. This is free. It's on us. As they left the bed and breakfast, the guest house, they got into a cab to take them to the station. The cabman said, what are you doing here? Oh, we're telling Jews about Jesus. He said, I've been praying for someone to come to my country to tell the Jews about Jesus. You can have this journey on me. Wow. Absolutely amazing. 
That's the kind of man that, that David Barron was, and that's the kind of work he was involved with. He and another Jew, a man called Charles Sconeberger, felt that there was a gap in, in, in reaching out to Jews. They felt there wasn't enough emphasis on giving the Jews the scriptures to read for themselves, that they may read themselves into the kingdom of God. You see, God's word is powerful. It really is powerful. And sometimes we forget that, how powerful God's word is. It, and the number of people, and this is where the Gideons come in, isn't it? I mean, they, a Bible in a bedroom, someone picks it up, and they read themselves into the kingdom of God because the word and the spirit are incredibly powerful. So these two men together said, look, we need to start another society. And so they started the Hebrew Christian testimony, which is still going today, which basically puts the scriptures into the hands of Jews and say, you read that and let's have a little discussion about it. To show the kind of integrity of the man, on one occasion David Barron was, uh, was preaching down in Cornwall, in fact down in St. Ives, and the following morning after he'd been preaching, a policeman stopped him. Here's the conversation. He gave him a half sovereign. He said, uh, Mr. Barron, I heard you preach three times yesterday and got more light on the Bible about the Jews than I ever got before. Please accept this. Now, half a sovereign's a lot of money. David Barron said, thank you, officer, but can you really afford this sum? The policeman said, I will, for I am in arrears already to this cause. <laughs> and, and, and when you read through the little sort of life story of, of David Barron, he... Uh, he he tells us he used to hold, hold meetings on a regular basis in London. And between 70 and 100 Jews would come into his meetings as he opened the Old Testament and just pointed out the Lord Jesus. He said there was a great openness among these people. Now, things have uh, greatly changed in our country without any doubt at all. And we get frightened to talk to anybody for fear of what they may say to different kinds of people in authority. Those days... People were wide open. Oh, yes, he said we got lots of abuse. But he said it was a pleasure. And by the way, their meetings were three hours long. And can you imagine? You know, eight o'clock at night, he's holding public meetings with a hundred Jews in a room, and he's telling them about the Lord Jesus being the Messiah. By the way, he didn't just work in this country. He and Charles Gromberger went right the way through Europe, and they spent so much time in Russia. Uh, and he says in his little book, as we travelled through Europe on a regular basis, we addressed between 400 and 500 Jews every night. There was a public meeting in Europe at which Theodor Herzl was present, and uh, they were speaking about the rebirth of the nation of Israel and that we need our land and, and things are turning against us in Europe. Can't you see the signs? And uh, David Barron was there. He could get in, you see, he was a Jew from Prussia. He spoke the language. He was sat on the front row. But he was personal friends with Theodor Herzl. And the man who was giving the talk that evening and said, by the way, our cause isn't helped by these people who are our own going around telling people that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And there's David Barron on the front row. Theodor Herzl came off the platform and sat next to him as if to say, wait a minute, this man is a good man. And I tell you, I know it's a bit of a, an anorak subject with me, but 
it was a pleasure to uncover this man's grave in London and stand next to it to say, this is a man who shared the gospel even with Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern-day Israel. And this is a man who traveled through Prussia, through Russia, right through Europe, and spent the bulk of his life in this country leading hundreds of Jews to Jesus. And how come you've never heard of David Barron? And then there's good old Ridley Herschel. What can we say about Ridley Herschel? He was a Polish Jew, and he's on the board as well. He was brought up in Poland, and uh, he was an Orthodox Jew training to be a rabbi. And uh, he, he started to travel. He just thought it's now time to travel, and so he began to travel. And as he traveled outside of Poland into Germany, into Berlin, he suddenly realized there was a world out there he'd never heard of before. The nearest I can explain it is it's like a boy going to an all-boys school and then being transferred to a mixed school. And you go, wow, I didn't know this world existed. Long may it exist. And, and, and suddenly this, this boy who had been brought up in the confines of Orthodox Judaism suddenly saw people living a life in Berlin. That, that's interesting. And from Berlin he thought, well, let's want to see what life is like in London. And so he came to London. When he was here, he fell very ill. But what is interesting is this. The landlady where he stayed was a Christian. She nursed him back to health, and uh, he was very grateful for that. And as he was leaving, she gave him a New Testament and said, Ridley, I'd like you to read this. And she gave him an address in Paris, because that's where he was going. He wanted to see what life was like in Paris. And so he... He said, thank you very much indeed. He went to Paris. He pushed the Bible and the address in his uh, bag and thought, I don't need this kind of stuff. And uh, he lived the life of Riley in Paris. One day, he, he went to the shop to buy some food, and the shopkeeper was an atheist. And out of sheer defiance, he was wrapping all his produce in a large Bible. So, you know, you bought a few ounces of rice, so he'd put the rice on the Bible, rip off the page and wrap it up. It just so happened that the page that Ridley Herschel received that night was Matthew chapter 23, the Lord Jesus lambasting hypocritical Pharisees. And don't forget, he'd been trained to be an Orthodox rabbi and he's living the high life in Paris. He said, this is interesting stuff. What's on the next page? But he hadn't got it. Then he remembered the New Testament. So he went into his bag and said, ah, this is in the book that I've been carrying around for months. Oh, by, by the way, this address. And so he hunted out the address, and, and surprise, surprise, the lady who owned the guest house in Paris, she too was a Christian, and she said to him, oh, I've heard about you, why don't you come in the evening, we have, we have a meeting. And so he started to go along to these meetings in Paris, and he began to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. He then had a letter from his old landlady in London who had given him the New Testament and the address. In the envelope were 250 francs saying, come back, Ridley. Come back. I'm learning this to get you back, to help you get a trade. Wandering around Europe is not good for you. Wow. Those kind of people are lost in our nation, aren't they? I mean, the salt of the earth who, who really knew the Lord. So he came back. And when he came back, he went to what was called the Operative Jewish Converts Institute. So what was that? 
Again, another Victorian title. The people who were involved in Jewish evangelism realized when a person started to ask questions from a Jewish point of view, they were ostracized by other people in the synagogue. They were ostracized by their families. So they said, look, if we can provide an institute where folk can come for six months, we'll teach them a trade so that when they leave, at least they've got a job if they're thrown out of kind of uh, the Jewish network. And during those six months, they can read any book they want on Christianity, the New Testament's here, and if they want to speak to us about the gospel, we can talk to them. The number of people who joined that institute and came to faith in Christ, one of those was Ridley Herschel. He came, he learned himself a trade, read the scriptures, talked to people involved in the gospel, and he came into the kingdom of God. (coughs) He then married. He married a woman ten years older than him, who in her spare time had learned Hebrew. Where are those kind of people in our church today? (laughs) And by the way, she she knew Edward Irving and the Irvinites. Well, he married her, and uh, they were very happily married. One man in London actually built Ridley Herschel, a chapel that seated 1,200 people, for him to use it as a base to reach out to the Jews. That's the kind of man that he was. He was heavily involved in the founding of the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel among the Jews. And also, he was one of the main motivators in establishing the Evangelical Alliance, which is still going today. He, later on, was involved in the Barbican Mission. And those two societies came together a number of years ago and are now known as Christian Witness to Israel, CWI. So when you hear of CWI, oh, it's great, Jews, you know, reaching out, hang on a minute. It all started with these people many, many years ago. Ridley Herschel, by the way, was one of ten boys. So his parents, you know, if they just had one more, could have had a football team. (laughs) But uh, they had ten boys. And how about this? Five of those boys became believers in Jesus. And four of those entered into either the ministry or into evangelistic work. Powerful. Ridley Herschel, he... He had clout, and I don't know why. It happens to some people. It's never happened to me. But doors open, and they go up in society and get known by many, many people. If you go to Kensal Green, which is London's largest Victorian cemetery, you'll find people like Wilkie Collins, uh, Thackeray, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, all the kind of big Victorians. His tomb is bigger than those three put together. It is absolutely Massive. He was well respected in, in the nation and he was very vocal about the Lord Jesus Christ. In relation to Europe, Europe was teeming with Jews who needed to hear the gospel. And the British society felt exercised about this, so they began to send missionaries out to Germany. They sent back their mission reports 1887, 170 Jewish converts this year. 1888, 240 Jewish converts. 1889, 348 Jewish converts. One Jewish missionary sent from this country to work in Austria sent back the report that that year he'd seen a thousand people kneel and accept Christ as Savior. How interesting I think this is. Within a matter of 50 years of all this happening, 
we then see the rise of, of Nazism. And I think I've got every right to say that a good number of Jews who finished up in concentration camps and who went into the gas chamber were Jewish believers. It's as if God knew what was coming and sent a move of the Spirit right throughout Europe. And I could stand here for, this is no exaggeration, for I've spent a year researching this, I could stand here for an hour or two hours telling you story after story of Jewish doctors, professors, university lecturers, scientists, authors who came to Christ in Austria and in Germany through a move of God among the Jewish people. But what about Scotland? You'll find this so interesting, especially when we get right to the very end, which isn't quite there, so don't get too excited. (laughs) In Scotland, the Church of Scotland today is primarily concerned, allegedly, with trying to work out this whole homosexual issue. And it has lost many people over it. Back in the Victorian era, the Church of Scotland was concerned with how can we reach out to Jews? How things have changed. Robert Murray McShane heard a man who was a converted Jew give testimony in his church at St. Peter's in Dundee. He was so moved, he said to the leaders of the Church of Scotland, we've got to do something about this. So a committee was formed to say, what can we do about Jewish evangelism? Wow, does, does the Baptist Union kind of discuss those things these days? Or the Congregational Church? Or the Methodist Church? Or the Anglican Church? What could we do to reach out to Jews? They agreed the best way was to send four men who were fairly gifted in, uh, in languages to send them right throughout Europe and also send them out to Israel to look for the best center to reach out to Jews. And so four men were chosen. Dr. Alexander Black, Dr. Alexander Keith, Andrew Boner, the brother of Horatio, and also Robert Murray McShane. This is no exaggeration. You can check this out. You haven't misheard this if you've just woken up. Dr. Alexander Black, one of the four, spoke 19 languages and could write 12 of them. The four of them set off from Scotland down to London all the way out to Israel, traveling to see what is the best place to put a Jewish mission When they got to Egypt, sadly, one of them, Dr. Black, fell off his camel and hurt his back. So imagine all this hype. You're telling your church, you won't see me for a year, I'm going to Israel. You get out there, you hurt your back, you've got to come home. But you can't be flown home. So having taken months to get there, it's kind of, what do we do? So Andrew Boner and Robert Murray McShane said, there's no way we're going home after this. So so the other two... Dr. Black and Dr. Keith, they made their way home via the Danube. We'll come back to that in a moment. The other two traveled their way through Israel. How about this? When they came to Jacob's well in Samaria, being the kind of man that he was, Andrew Boner looked down to see how deep it was. Remember, the well is deep and we have nothing with which to draw. As he looked down, his Bible slipped out of his pocket and fell down the well. (laughs) So Andrew Boner, that great kind of Scottish preacher, well, his Bible went down to the bottom of of the well there at Syker. What is interesting, 
a friend of his was going out there four years later. And he said, do you mind looking for my Bible? <laughs> when the friend got there, he, pre- he paid some young boy to get tied to a rope who was lowered 70 feet down the well, fished around, and pulled out his Bible. And if you want to see Andrew Boner's Bible that has been down Jacob's well, you go to Edinburgh and there it is. And if you see it, you get 50 years of purgatory. (laughs) It's a great relic. These two men eventually came back from Israel saying, "This this is wonderful. This is a great opportunity. We've got to think seriously about putting a base for Jewish evangelism in Israel. The other two men, as they followed the course of the Danube, they came to Hungary. One's got a bad back, and the other's probably quite miffed that he has to go home with his man with a bad back, but being a gracious man, he, he, he went with him. When they came to Hungary, to Budapest, they both caught the Danube fever. All the evidence was they were on death's door. They led there for weeks. Nobody knew who these Scotsmen were. They couldn't understand them anyway. And, 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 and nobody knew who they were and they were just led in this kind of hotel just groaning and thinking we want to die the Archduchess Maria Dorothea she heard about these two people from our country who were ill and she sent soup down every day for them she ordered that the street be lined with straw so that the, the horses' hooves would not disturb the men who were so ill. Gradually, amazingly, they recovered. When they recovered, she then, because it was safe, went in to see them. This is a very Roman Catholic country. She got chatting to them. She discovered they were believers. And she quietly said, So am I. She said, A few years ago, I lost my son. And it brought me to the Lord. And I have been praying ever since then that God would send people to my country to tell my people about Jesus. But it's very dangerous because it's Roman Catholic. Wow. She said, during these past few weeks, I have been unable to sleep. Because God has been saying to me, something is going to happen in this city. And I didn't know what it was. Now I know what it is. He has brought you here. And so here were two men. One had fallen off a camel with a bad back. (laughs) And God was beginning to do something. When all these four men eventually arrived back in Scotland, what stories they had to tell. These two men who'd been in Budapest said, we've got to go to Budapest. We've got to start a mission there. And so, in the end, the Church of Scotland sent a Scotsman called John Duncan. You will know him as Rabbi Duncan. He wasn't a rabbi, but he spoke fluent Hebrew. He spoke seven languages. He was a very, very gifted man. Technically speaking, he was the wrong man to be an evangelist. I don't mean that because he was educated. That was the last thing I'm saying. (laughs) But the the man was a university lecturer. He was a professor. And, you know, he was more at home talking to students than he was witnessing in in another language in another country. He went out there and he asked 
who is the most educated Jew in Budapest? And back came the answer. It's a man called Israel Safir. He said, I'd love to meet him. And so John Duncan went out and he met Israel Safir. They hit it off. He began to hold little services and he began to explain very simply in a very gentle way about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Israel Safir had six children, three boys and three girls. One night, they, uh, sorry, one morning, the family got up and they had breakfast together and they always gave thanks before they ate their food. Israel Safir, this erudite Jew in, in Budapest who was warming to John Duncan's preaching, had taken his son Adolf Safir. And Israel said to his little boy, who was 11 years of age, Adolf, do you mind giving thanks for breakfast? So the little boy thanked Jehovah, the great God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for this food. And we say, thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a Jewish home? You could hear a pin drop. He'd come to faith in Christ, a young boy. So had Israel. And one by one, his wife and the other five children all became Christians. Remember the Sophia family for just a few minutes' time. Very significant. When John Duncan, after two years, went back to Scotland, he took Adolf with him. He left behind another convert that he'd led to the Lord, a young boy called Albert Edersheim. You heard of Edersheim? Yeah, he too spoke seven languages. These were clever people. Albert Edersheim became a great scholar in, 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 in the things of God and we're deeply indebted to him. Adolf Sophia came to Scotland to improve his English. He then entered the ministry. He had a church in South Shields. He then pastored a church in Greenwich. When he went there, the congregation was a hundred. They had to extend the church twice because it had grown to over a thousand people, primarily through conversion, not kind of just moving around in the church flap. And so here's Mr. Spurgeon just, just a few miles away, dressing 6,000 people. And here's a converted Jew who was born again through a man falling off a camel and going to Budapest, <laughs> reaching out to a thousand people in London. Absolutely amazing. In the end, he, uh, he, he pastored a church in the center of London. And, and Mr. Spurgeon had great respect for Adolf Safir. Great respect for him. And what is very sad is that, is that towards the end of his life, Adolf Safir was ill and so was his wife. It's very Victorian, this. They were in different bedrooms being nursed. And, and, and she went first. used to shout to each other, How are you, my dear? But he was too weak to get out of bed to see her, and she was too ill to get out of bed to see him. And, and, and she went into eternity first, and, and then he followed second. By the way, he's not far from, uh, from Ridley Herschel. And again, to stand there and say, Lord, what a man of God this was. Why have we not heard of Adolf Sophia? And then, here's the final one, Aaron Stern. Of all the books I've read on Jewish evangelists, none were as gripping as the life of Henry Aaron Stern. His biography is 450 pages long. I thought, Lord, the millennium will be here by the time I finish this. 
So every morning I sat down for one hour and read just 40 pages. And it's kind of Victorian print. Not ten of those print. You know. <laughs> he was a Jew who was, he was a German Jew. He was walking past a glass case. And, and in that case, he saw some Hebrew writing. And, and he looked closer, and it was advertising some Christian message. He read it and was, was deeply intrigued. He said to a friend, I've seen something strange in a glass cage. What do you think of this? And the man said, oh, I know what it means. I can take you to a meeting that will explain that. And so Henry Aaron Stern, he, uh, he went along to this Christian meeting, was deeply impressed by the man who handled the Hebrew scriptures and handled them so well. So much so that he joined the Hebrew or the, the operative Jewish uh, institute where people could go along and learn a trade and, and hear about the Lord Jesus. He went there. After six months, he was so converted, he was alive with the gospel. Coming out of that place after six months, he spent the next 40 years on the mission field telling people about Jesus. 30 of those were abroad. 10 were in this country. He, he went everywhere telling people about Jesus. He, he went out to Mesopotamia, and uh, primarily, you may have heard of this story, and, and it's there in his, in his uh, biography, very, very moving. He, he went out to what was called Abyssinia. And he said, we used to travel at night because, number one, it was safer, and also it was cooler. He said, I traveled over the whole of Abyssinia looking for Jews to tell them about Jesus. He said it was dangerous, it was frightening. I have never come across anyone who has suffered so much as this man. He even witnessed to the king, King Theodore, who got on like a house on fire with him and was, was delighted with this kind of man. He then came home on deputation and then went back. In the meantime, King Theodore had written to Queen Victoria, but she didn't want to answer this African king, whoever he is, King Theodore, who's he? So when he went back, he didn't know that he was really hurt that Queen Victoria hadn't answered a personal letter. So he went to see King Theodore. He had a, a kind of royal tent, and it was part of the law of Abyssinia. If you saw the king's tent, you never went past it. You always called in and offered your greetings. So he saw the king's tent. He said, we have to go. So he said to King Theodore, I bring greetings from my country. To which he said, is that so? Within ten minutes, the two men who were with him were whipped to death in front of his very eyes. He was then wrapped in a rope from his neck down to his feet and just left on the floor. He was in prison for the next five years. And on a regular basis, it was a rope day, just rope you up and just leave you on the floor. He said, on a daily basis, I saw men being led out of prison to be executed, wondering, when is it my turn? It was horrendous. News got back to England that Henry Aaron Stern has been taken by the king of Abyssinia and is in serious trouble. What can you do in those days? There's no phones, you know, no texting, no airplanes. What a nightmare. After letters going backwards and forwards for a long time, in the end, the British government said the only way we can get this solved is to send out the army. But how do you send the British army to Abyssinia? 
their nearest group of troops were in India. So the troops came down from India, 12,000 men from India for one man. They came all the way down to Abyssinia, sort of typical British, you know, kind of with their little coats and cannons and guns. Having arrived there, they then had to trek these things through hundreds of miles to where the prison is. When eventually they got there, King Theodore, seeing the British flag, freed Henry Stern and then shot himself. The man came home. He was absolutely wrecked. He'd been on the road for 30 years. He'd been in a prison for five years. Most of that wrapped in a rope. He was absolutely broken. He came home. Can you imagine the state of his mind, the state of his body? Oh, terrible. When he eventually recovered, he then spent the remaining 10 years of his life just reaching out to Jews in this country. Listen to this from his biography. In St. Mary's Church, Whitechapel, Christchurch, Spitterfields, and St. Stephen's Commercial Road, there were present at each sermon from four to 500 Jews and Jewesses. Their attention was highly gratifying. In leaving the sacred building, the missionaries supplied suitable tracts to those who were willing to accept them. Every group had something to observe about the sermon. Recently, after a sermon in Christchurch, Spitterfields, a Jew on going out expressed his regret that he'd listened to a rubbish apostate come out with what he did. Said another Jew, what have you to object against that sermon? Did not the preacher prove all he stated from our own Bible? Ah, you're one of those fanatics who think that all the nonsense uttered by a rabbi must be true and every truth spoken by a Christian must be false. And for ten years he just did that and, and led hundreds and hundreds to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll just mention this for the final time. Some 15 years ago I was in London and I was walking through London Cemetery which has thousands of people buried there and I just saw a gravestone falling over and I don't know why but I just thought I want to look at that stone and I walked over and it said Henry Aaron Stern, missionary to the Jews for 40 years. One can get the impression that London was awash with societies reaching out to the Jews. You're right. The Barbican mission to the Jews, the East London mission to the Jews, uh, the British Society for the Black Proclamation of the Jews, the Hebrew Christian Testimony, Malmö Mission to the Jews, the London Jew Society in Bethnal Green, and on and on and on it goes. I've spoken for an hour. That is enough. Let me just finish by telling you something very interesting. Remember Adolf Safir? That young boy who gave thanks in the name of Jesus at breakfast, who came to this country and then was pastoring down in, in Greenwich. He was one of six children. One of his sisters married and had two children, a boy and a girl. The boy became an Orientalist. And as part of his studies, he went out to India to, to further his studies. He said to his younger sister, do, do you fancy coming with me to India? You know, you can keep yourself busy while I'm doing my work. Yep, I'll come with you. It just so happened that the British army were out there there was an English officer called Charles Amory. 
Charles Amory saw this girl. He fell in love with her. He proposed. She accepted. And they got married. They had one son. Leopold Amory. Leopold was raised in this country. He went to university. When he came out, he was a bright cookie. No wonder with relatives like this. And uh, he became a Times correspondent. After reporting on the politics of this country for a number of years as a journalist, he said, I think I could be a politician. And so he stood for Parliament in the Midlands and became a Liberal MP in Lloyd George's uh, coalition government. One of the men who he worked for was a man you've probably never heard of, A.J. Balfour. We as a nation were involved in the Jewish people and the settlement of land out in the Middle East. A.J. Balfour said to this Leopold Amri, who never revealed his Jewish background to anybody, do you mind drawing up the draft document for the Jewish settlement of the land. The Balfour Declaration, which is 117 words long, is probably the most important document in the 20th century, was written by Leopold Amory, the second cousin of Adolf Safir. It gets better. One of the men that Leopold had to do business with was a man called Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate was a man who greatly impressed Winston Churchill and was famous for his involvement with the Chindits. Ord Wingate was brought up with the Plymouth Brethren. It was said of Ord Wingate, he was brought up on the sincere milk of God's word and dripping. <laughs> he was a bit of a, an eccentric, but he was a most fascinating man, and it was he who helped shape the Haganah, the Jewish freedom fighters. When John Duncan was sent out by the Church of Scotland to Budapest to start a missionary, and John Duncan said, who is the most influential and intelligent Jew in the city that I may speak to him? And people said, it is Israel Safir. He didn't go alone. He took with him three young missionaries to help establish the mission station in Budapest. One of them was called William Wingate. The grandfather of Ord Wingate. And how interesting, in London, in a room, stood Leopold Amory and Ord Wingate. And these two men never knew that Ord Wingate's grandfather had been influential in leading Leopold Amri's grandmother to the Lord. And while one was shaping British politics, the other was shaping Jewish politics. And all that came about because one man carelessly fell off a camel <laughs> in Egypt. Next time you sing... God moves in a mysterious way. <laughs> His wonders to perform. Just say, thank God for those two men.
Well, I could say an awful lot more, but I think that is enough. I can see some of you are sleeping, and that's great. <laughs> you know that when I speak, you have a good hour. The hour is now over. Okay.